Uh, join me if you would in welcoming tonight's speaker, <coughs> Gerald. Hi, everybody. My name is Gerald. I'm an alcoholic. Hello, oh, Gerald. And, uh, you know, I've known I was going to speak for a while, and for once, I, I have no idea what I'm going to tell you tonight. And I pray that I don't speak to you from my intellectual mind. I pray that my heart is open enough tonight that I can speak to you from my heart and share my experience with you. Because what I know isn't going to save your life, because it never saved my life. That's why I'm here. Because what I know is going to kill me. Uh, because I have alcoholism. So what was I like? Well, I was a pain in the ass. That's what I was like. And um, I'm probably still a pain in the ass, you know, but uh, I'm sober today. And, the, and I'll tell you a little bit what makes me an alcoholic. First, I want to say, I, when I pulled up, you know, into the driveway today, I had an amazing feeling when I walked, when I walked up to the driveway and I saw some people I hadn't seen in a while. I, I saw a guy, I was, up, I was just up with my sponsor at the Maine State Prison doing a big book conference. And there was a guy who said he was going to get out. I didn't know if I was going to see him ever again. And I, I saw him tonight, and he's here. And, uh, you know, that makes it all worth it. You know, some of you maybe have heard this is a selfish program. And it's not. It's the exact opposite of that. I'm a selfish person. And maybe they got that backwards. Uh, because what I need is an unselfish program for a guy like me, because I'm self-centered to the extreme. Everything revolves around self. You know, and... Um, Anyway, just really quickly, so you don't think that I'm just here selling Amway. Uh, <laughs> my first drink was at 14. It was a drink I tried to avoid because I hated alcohol and I hated people who drank alcohol. Uh, I tried to manage my life with drugs, uh, but, you know, it just wasn't working out so great. And at 14, after my grandfather's funeral, I, I, I needed to find a way to, to not feel the way I was feeling. And there's a couple of kids I looked up to, these punk rock skateboarder types, and they were drinking uh, wild turkey. That sounded pretty fun. And uh, I think it had wild in the name. That's, uh, I wanted to be wild. So um, I said no a couple times. But by the third time it came around to me, I took a sip. Now, some of you may identify with this experience, or you may not. But this is definitely how I know I had alcoholism. When I took that first sip, it was like my whole life I was living underwater, and once that sip reached my lips and that warmth hit my stomach, I felt that I could breathe. And being me for the first time in my life was okay. Now a couple times I experienced that with marijuana and Led Zeppelin. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I was breaking into cars and running away from home, uh, stuff like that. You know, the thrill, the adrenaline, the excitement. But alcohol, I didn't even have to do anything but drink some liquid. And they gave me all the escape and relief that I had been looking for my whole life. And I had arrived. And I didn't care how I was going to get it, where it was going to come from, but this is something that I'm doing. And uh, I was before that day uh, a very isolated, withdrawn, uh, very quiet, sheepish, um, you know, probably wannabe thought. Because I wasn't really, I was a very scared little boy. Uh, who grew up in a very poor um, household, and the only way I could get stuff was, was to steal it. And alcohol started to make my lifestyle, my behavior okay. It gave me all, it, it gave me all the relief and, and, and the lies and delusions that all my problems were gone, and uh, and I loved every minute of that. Why would I stop doing this? It is my solution for life. I now feel okay in my own skin. I don't mind wearing, you know, I, before that day I wore high water pants and clip on ties and. My mom dressed me, and um, <laughs> after that day, she didn't dress me no more, and, uh, you know, 
I still look like an idiot, but um, I felt that I was taking control of my own life. I'm taking matters in my own hands. I'm not waiting for anybody. I'm not waiting for this idea of God. I'm not waiting for a family member or some other savior to save me. I have found alcohol and I'm done. I'm saved. End of story. Now, things did not stay that way. The relief that alcohol gave me was quickly declining. I had to consume more and more amounts of alcohol. And then alcohol wasn't even enough. I started realizing you could snore coke and you could drink alcohol all night. I found all kinds of different ways to became a junior chemist and um, you know, started just finding ways that I could just not be mean. Get the hell out of here. Here sucks. Me sucks. You know, uh, and, and, and I was in full flight from reality. And that's not all that was going on with me. That's all that I was aware of at the time. That's all that I knew. I would have told you, yes, I want to get the hell out of here. What? What? You want to be here? Well, good for you. Uh, I did believe two lies my whole life. One was, if you had my life, you'd drink like this too. And two was, I'm not hurting anybody, just leave me alone. Because as I came to learn in the steps, was that I'm hurting everybody. I hurt everybody by my behavior. Drinking hurts everyone that I come into contact with. I have part, my, my disease made my family neurotic. And they're neurotic to begin with. So add me in that equation, and it was like, it was like TNT. And um, so it didn't take very long for my family to do an intervention on me. And uh, they said, you can go to AA or else. I was really not, I really wanted to know what else was. You know, um, I'm not really sure actually, what, what else is, but my mom is five feet tall, but she's like a dragon. And, uh, you know, I was a little terrified of her. And, um, but at that point, we were getting in fist fights. Um, I didn't want to be at home. And uh, she, so we made a deal. Gerald, you go to an AA meeting. I was 17 years old. We'll send you away to college, and we'll pay for it. And I said, that sounds wonderful. I get the hell away from all you people, and I can go drink the way I want. And um, so I went to an AA meeting. Oh, that's all right. Or else was rehab. <laughs> and uh, I didn't know what rehab was, but it just didn't sound like fun. And because um, I didn't think you could drink there. And uh, I was told an AA meeting was an hour, so that sounded just fine. And uh, I take an hour or 30 days any time. And um, so with this AA meeting, they talked about all kinds of stuff. One thing they talked about that was driving me bananas was alcohol. I had to listen to people talk about alcohol that whole time. I tell you, I have never been thirstier. When I walked out of that meeting, all I wanted to do was drink. I couldn't understand how you could sit in a meeting and talk about alcohol in such depth and in such clarity that you would leave the meeting and not drink. That made absolutely no sense to me. Because the first thing I did when I left was, hey, that was great. Thanks a lot for the meeting. I waited until my, everybody was asleep, snuck out the door, stole the car, went and drank. And, uh, you know, and then they didn't know that, so they sent me off to college with a scholarship. And after about two weeks, I went to college, and uh, it was my second attempt, because I was getting kicked out of one in New York. And um, i got to tell you, man, I remember being so fucked up. I was about to go to class, and uh, <laughs> I remember hearing everybody laughing. And I remember everybody having a good time, and I hadn't yet walked in the door. And I was, it was about 8 o'clock in the morning. And I could, and, I, and even though I was so fucked up, I just was so, I was shaking. I was so uncomfortable. And I thought, I don't know how people could just be sitting there laughing. That is just not my world. And uh, I just can't go in there as messed up as I am. And uh, I had to make a choice. It's either going to be school or it's going to be, you know, this party lifestyle. So I, I went back to my dorm room and drank a bunch of warm beer. And um, that's all I did. And I locked myself in there. And 
Eventually they came knocking and said, hey, who the hell are you? And I said, you know, I'm a student. And they checked my name and said, you haven't been a student here in like two months. And so they kicked me out and moved into the dorm room next door. And because um, they had free bologna. I hate bologna. But it was the one meal a week that I could probably, you know, stomach. And, uh, you know, eventually um, there was, you know, some uh, police business involved. You know, and nobody really wanted me around anymore, and I really didn't really want to be on the streets of Pittsburgh. So I came back to New York, and I tried to clean up my act. I don't know if anybody's ever done that. You know, just trying to just move somewhere and start again. You know, and I don't mean like I had a line in the back of my head. I don't mean that I was I was just going to do all this crazy stuff. I was really going to go back and try to be an adult. I was going to try to be a man. I was going to try to grow up. Um, that lasted about two minutes. Uh, because once I crossed the New York border, all this new resolve came back. And I thought of all these guys. And I was like, you know, I bet you Chris is still in his apartment growing marijuana. And I mean, we can get some liquor and just smoke all week long. Well, we, I went to Chris's house. I probably didn't leave for three months. I don't know if we ever saw the outside. You know, if we did, we were like shooting BBs at cars and stuff like that. And, uh, I, and I just really lost track of time. And next thing you know, my mom is, uh, see, my mom's a hairdresser, and she always befriends the most interesting people. And one of the most interesting people that she befriended was the, was the head director of a thing called BCI, the Bureau of Criminal Investigations of New York. And uh, they kind of think they're like the FBI in New York. And they drive unmarked cars and wear suits, and they like to put handcuffs on them. And uh, my mom would send them around. I swear these guys could find the needle in the haystack. I mean, I would run away for three days. I didn't even know who I was hanging out with. But they knew who I was hanging out with. And, uh, you know, and then I remember being at a family reunion. I'm going to tell you, I knew, I might have known one guy there in the middle of nowhere on a farm in New York. I don't know how I got there. I don't know how long I've been there. But this family looked like the ideal family. And they were amazing. They were like playing the, like, ain't badman. And they were like eating, you know, burgers. And mom and dad were kissing. And the sons. I was like, man, I thought I was in heaven. And the next thing you know, for all these people, comes the BCI throwing me on the ground, handcuffing me, throwing me in the back of the car and taking off. I said, I won't be invited there again. And um, they tried to scare me into sobriety. And, uh, you know, I thought that might work too, that maybe I just needed to be afraid enough. I'd be afraid to drink and maybe I won't drink ever again. I'm going to tell you, that never worked. That has never, ever worked. And I don't know if any of you have said this, but I remember sitting at an AA meeting and saying, I'm not going to drink again because I know that I will, I'm going to blow my brains out before I do that. I'm going to tell you, I've relapsed five or six times and I have yet to blow my brains out because my alcoholism is way more powerful than my desire to die. When I'm going to drink, I'm going to drink and there's been nothing that could ever stop me. No fear, no resolve, no AA meeting, no sponsor, no police officer, nothing. I've tried every single one of those things. The outside, you know, world has tried all those things with me. This frothy emotional appeal, please, Gerald, do not drink. Please, you have everything, you know, going on for you. You don't need to do this. And I would say, sure, absolutely, totally not going to do that. I got, I'm about, you know, I remember I was 89 days sober once, and, and, I, and I, was, I wasn't feeling great. I hated my life. I hated my job. I wasn't doing anything besides sitting at a meeting, just sitting there going, fuck. I couldn't wait to get the hell out of that meeting and go do something wrong. I hadn't signed up for this crap. I had not signed up for a life of spiritual principles. I just wanted to take the edge off of being me. 
And, you know, con- certain consequences came along with it. That's not my alcoholism, but that's, that's the deal. You know, I go out and I live by self-repulsion. Things happen. You know, that I later go, man, if it, was, if it wasn't for so-and-so and this and the law, you know, I'd be fine. <laughs> that's a lie I believe. Everybody else's fault but me. My whole life was about external, you know, external change. I don't have to change inside. I've got to change my outside. You know, I just get new friends. I go to new me. I go to a new town. I remember moving to Ohio from New York City. I thought, well, New York City's bad. Of course New York's bad. You know, it's dangerous. Or it's like you can drink everywhere, you know, whatever, man. I have a long history with New York. And I thought I'm going to move to country Ohio. And, you know, because I'm going to drink and I'm going to maybe die there. That's fine. And it happened to, I think, 75% of that town were in Alcoholics Anonymous or believed in God. And uh, it wasn't really the best place on earth for a guy to try to hide. You know, a guy like me. Uh, you know, the real miracle was... That was one of my last bottoms. And, uh, see, we're drinking, we're, you know, I don't know if anybody's ever believed this lie. I remember I had about, I had four and a half years in AA. And, uh, I remember working at a restaurant in New York City, and my life had changed immensely. I mean, immensely. Just being sober and doing just a minimal amount of the work, a lot of things changed. I actually felt okay. Some, you know, but going to meetings and meeting people and fellowshipping, that did a lot of wonders for me. There were people that trusted me and talked to me, hung out with me, that would never give me the time of day. And I gotta tell you, that did a lot for a guy like me. That gave me a little bit of esteem. And I ran on that for a while. And it was really nice to feel part of something. So I never felt part of anything. I hung around a place too long, and eventually people, you know, they caught on to, to my selfishness and were like, okay, we're done with you. Get out of here. We love you, Jerry, but just too damn much. You know, you're spending the last 20 bucks. I can't have you around. You don't do the job we asked you to do. I mean, my job, you know, was probably the easiest job in the world. I mean, I worked at tables, and all I had to do the other night was fill up ketchup, you know. But by the end of the night, at 6 o'clock in the morning, remember the, the chefs would put, these Mexican guys would come in, and they'd be kicking me going, Gerardo, get the hell out of here. I'd be covered in vomit and ketchup, and I'm like, I can't even do that job. And, uh, and I'd be walking the back of Brooklyn trying to catch the subway, still drunk. I was the guy that should have slept all the day through, because when I, I went to sleep drunk, I woke up drunk. And I thought, man, wow, I think I've gotten pretty bad. But nothing a few beers won't fix. And this is what I constantly told myself. Well, things won't get that bad because there's another beer around the corner and everything will be just fine. This is the same head that I trusted to keep me sober for years and eventually it turned on me. Now, if that's ever happened to you, I mean, I had no plans on drinking. I had no plans on ruining my life and, and watching it go downhill, you know, in flames. And what happened was I was 20 five years old and I had never had a legal drink and I thought, damn, I just want to go on a date with a girl and I just want to have one beer and look like a normal guy. So we went to a restaurant. Six months later, because the rest of the meal don't really matter. What happened was only six months later, I'm sitting on a windowsill. She left me. I've got a needle in my arm, bottle of tequila in my legs. i got a tie-dyed Speedo, cowboy hat, blue blockers, and a 22 rifle. I'm thinking, man, I'd rot. <laughs> no one wanted to be around me. I had a gorgeous apartment, but it had this little woodshed in the back, and I lived in the woodshed. I could not go in the, other, in the rest of the apartment. I lived in my woodshed in a tiny little bed. I had my little altar with all my little stuff on it, and sometimes I might beg one of the, you know, 18-year-old delivery guys to bring me some beer. And I would just sit up there, and I hoped to God I would die. That's what happens to me when I go out and try to have one beer. That's what happens to me when I try to go on a date and be so-called normal. And I believed for years that I could 
I could just come in here, clean up, go back, and do it again. And I thought I could even just come in here and stay sober. So that's what I tried next. I said, wow, that life is scary, and I, I look kind of psycho. Uh, you know, people come over, and I try to be normal. Next thing you know, I'm emptying the refrigerator contents into a big white bucket, mixing it with a ladle, and offering it to people, and saying, dinner served. You know, and I wear a sock for a bow tie when things got fancy. And uh, I was out of my mind. I was absolutely, absolutely all touch of reality, and that's what alcohol and my drug use was doing to me. I did not know how to talk or interact with you people. I didn't know how to not steal. And the only way I could not hurt you was not be around you. And I don't just mean you guys in AA. I mean the whole world. Because it didn't matter if I was in AA or not in AA. I couldn't go to the grocery store. I was not to be trusted. I couldn't drive a car when I didn't have one. Um, but I'm sure I couldn't drive it if I did have one. I, where would I go? You know, I was usually too drunk to drive. And uh, most of the time I was just sleeping, passed out, hoping that, you know, I, would, I wouldn't wake up the next day. But I'd always wake up the next day and say, well, here we go again. And maybe I'll try harder to kill myself today. That's me and my best effort. That's what me trying to keep myself sober. That's what my life looks like. And that's not a sad, pathetic story. Well, yes, actually, that is a sad story. <laughs> I'm not painting a picture that I'm the worst guy in the block. But believe me, I've heard worse stories. I'm just saying that's what happens to me when I just forgot to have one drink. It's just, you know, the, the end result, and really simply, is that I fail. I, I fail. And I hurt a lot of people in the process, and I waste a lot of breath on this planet. You know, and there's so much more. There's so much more to look for, you know, and... Um, but I never knew the concept of surrender. I never knew the concept of get the hell out of the picture and let something greater than yourself take control. I didn't really know what that meant. That doesn't sound good. That, that sounds like, man, if I have to admit that I'm a failure and a powerless man, I, I'm a real loser then. I mean, I'd rather be eating garbage and homeless than admit that I'm powerless over alcohol. I really felt that way. That's how egotistical I was and how determined I was to beat this game. Anyway, so... Went back to New York, and after a series of, of mishaps and trying to get sober, 60 days here, 30 days here, whatnot, um, someone that I had dated uh, overdosed and died, and I went to her funeral, and her mom gave me her uh, half of her ashes in a Ziploc baggie, and I had this twisted coat of quarrels, and after a failed suicide attempt at her funeral, because she wasn't going to show me up, um, I decided to bring her ashes to an AA meeting. I don't know, maybe I figured I could do something, one last thing that was good in this world before I died. And so what happened was I kind of stuck around. And I, I, I remember someone said, why don't you come around for 90 days? Now, I didn't really give a crap whether I stuck around, but I cared that I brought her ashes to a meeting for 90 days. And I got to tell you, I had a really crazy experience in dating her. Now, I don't know, it wasn't anything special. The meeting, I, don't, I couldn't tell you what happened at the meeting. All I know is I walked out that door. And I had the most sane thought I had had in my whole life. And that was, there is no way in hell I've been keeping myself sober for 89 days. And for 89 days, I wanted to die, drink, run away, hide, kill somebody. Yet, I'm walking out of an AA meeting. I actually have a vehicle and a license that's illegal. That was weird. And I don't want to drink. And in fact, my heart kind of feels kind of good. I had a sense of relief that I don't think I had experienced in, in years. And I knew without a shadow of a doubt there was a power greater than myself that for 89 days loved me more than I loved myself. And I'd love to tell you I followed it up with some strenuous effort. I did not. That was the greatest experience I'd ever had in Alcoholics Anonymous. 
what I followed that up with was some more selfishness. Because there wasn't a damn person who could take me through the 12 steps. Now, I'm telling you, that is true. I came from an area of New York where they take you through the steps in an intellectual way. And by 9, they forget that you're even, that you're even around. Now, there were some great people there. and they really, they, they, I mean, I'm, I'm not bad enough than everybody in AA, but I'm telling you right now, I asked the guy to take me through the 12 steps, and he said, Gerald, I'd love to, but I don't know how. And this guy had 25 years of sobriety, and I, and I loved the man. I still love the man. He was more spiritual in his pinky than I was in my whole body, but he couldn't show me how to get there. And that sucks. That sucks because I wanted to die. And, I, and it was very hard. I had to be really beaten up to get on my knees and say, God, help me. Somebody, please show me the directions on how to not be this guy anymore. Um, so I pretty much gave up, stopped going to meetings. Someone asked me to chair a meeting, which was weird. I couldn't believe why they asked me to chair a meeting. Usually I was, you know, some guy got in fist fights and threw chairs around and told you all the time, gave you all the finger and said, I hope you drink and die. That's what I did to me. I'm not proud of that. In fact, I've gone back and made amends to those people. But that's how angry I was inside. That's me trying to stay sober. I have a sobriety problem. I don't know if you, know, if you get that. But I have a real sobriety problem. I don't, I don't like it. I don't like being sober. Uh, maybe you guys do. But I don't. Just living with me, with nothing, just me, raw me in this world, a very painful experience. I'm just like a living nerve, and I react to every single thing. If you're not looking at me funny, what, 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 what? You know? That's me in a meeting, just, just me, by myself. You know? I see a guy and a girl, I think she should be mine, and he thinks I'm a fan. Like, that's me. <laughs> that is my crazy mind. That's the mind I took with me into alcohol times. That's why no matter where I go, things always just kept staying the same. Why they would get worse? Because the thing between my ears was running the show, and I had no idea how damaged and sick and broken it really was. And I trusted it on a daily basis to keep me sober. But this thing was going to change my life. Just learn more, know more, do better. Da da da. Look, look. And I went crazy because of that. And I was driving a lot of people in crazy. And I was breaking hearts left and right. And I was hurting my family still. Nothing had changed. Nothing. I was just Gerald not drinking. Let me tell you what. My wife says it really well. I was causing more harm. Because they give you lots of coffee. So now I'm just wide awake causing trouble. <laughs> so when I'm drinking, I'm passed out half the time. And you can't find me. You know, throw me to an AA meeting, just pop me up on goofballs and some caffeine, and I'm just like, ah, yes, yes, you know. <laughs> and that's the way I was, hitting on newcomers, conducting completely inappropriate steals, stealing treasury money. Again, that's me in AA by myself. That is not me today. But that's what I was like. So what happened? My wife today, who was just someone that I was friends with in AA at the time, was speaking at a meeting. She was part of a group of people that went to a big book workshop. And all they did in this big workshop is what you know now was they just went through the steps. That's all. Nothing weird. Nothing cultish. They didn't, you know, stand in the middle of a pentagram and sell their soul to, you know, some weird stuff and, and pray to a baby in a jar. They just went through the steps. That's it. Exactly the way they had been outlined, the way that they wrote it from the beginning. A way that could be passed on, probably with lots of interpretation, but at the same point, the same steps. And, um... She started talking about some weird words, and I'm telling you, maybe some of you guys, because you live in Portland, may know these words better than I did. They were physical allergy. And I don't know if you know what that means, but I, at the time, I didn't know what you were talking about. I've been in NA for on and off for 12 years, no one ever used those words. What the hell does that mean? And I'm getting angry, and then she says, phenomenon, a great phenomenon. I don't know how to spell that. <laughs> <laughs> you 
his spiritual malady. Now I know she's lost her absolute freaking mind. Spiritual malady. I knew it was going to be some kind of pseudo-Christian weird thing. So, and then she starts talking about, you know, writing this inventory. But she said it in a way that she, like, understood what she was doing. Like, it made sense. Like, she could see the selfishness, you know, the dishonesty in her life. She started talking about pretty much what I do today and what I passed on, but it was new news to me. She talked about a man, then she talked about a spiritual awakening. And then she was carrying this message to me. Man, i got to tell you, I never heard anything I wanted so bad, and, and I never heard anything I wanted to just, like, sh- shut her up, too, because it was scaring the crap out of me. Because all these years in the age, never heard such talk. And it's something I wanted, it was something I was terrified of. She did mention God, and I was very scared of that word. I didn't know what it meant, but I didn't know I didn't want it. And um, I was uh, sleeping with a friend of hers who was uh, reading the third step to me out of the big book, which is so weird. You know, uh, who she was also dating my best friend. So, yeah, we weren't all better. Um, <laughs> it's a great prayer in the seventh step prayer says, God, you know, you know, take me the, the good and the bad. And I, I know today's because, you know what, take the good and the bad because I don't know which one you're going to use today to help others. And they were using a lot of bad to help me because I was not good. <laughs> but she read, she mentioned something about the actor, run, you know, being the director. She talked about, you know, lolling in the Florida sunshine, really meaning just sitting back in a, a complaining about the outside world, yet it's my internal condition, it's what's going on in here that's really killing me, and I'm just going to sit here and blame all of you and say, wow, the world has really wronged me, and if things would just go my way, I'm telling you, everything would be great, but none of you get got the memo, none of you are following my lines, god damn you, just do what I say, I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm not trying to be egotistical, but really, if you just did what I said, things wouldn't really go better. <laughs> I'm smarter. No, that's not me. I'm serious. Um, I asked her a question on my steps, and I remember this is this is the beginning of the end. I said, I heard her speak to me. I said, Look, I heard you say that you believe that God is keeping you sober 24/7. Do you really believe that? And she said, Oh yeah, 100 percent, absolutely. Whew, I gotta tell you, man, that. That really floored me, because I thought, I was doing some of it. <laughs> I gotta be doing this. And maybe I was doing some of it. But you see, the results of me trying to do some of it is pain, misery, confusion. I'm a producer of confusion, not harmony. That's my, my, my qualifications for fitting into Alcoholics Anonymous. I produce confusion, because I'm battling egos instead of trying to work with you. To try to free people of their mental obsession and, and, and trying to get into what's close into our hearts. I did not know anything about my heart. All I knew was that my mind had some answer. All I had to do was figure out the riddle. I could not figure it out. And I wanted to feel that kind of freedom that comes with saying, yes, I believe God's doing it. You know that feeling I had when I first took a drink was, oh, man, it's okay. It's going to be okay. I have felt that feeling in the first step. When I smashed the delusion that I am ever going to be normal, I have felt like this. Oh, it feels good. When I got on my knees, I said the third step prayer. When I found out that my pride, my intellectual pride, was keeping me from believing there was a power greater than myself, and that it was not me, that it was beyond a doorknob, and it was beyond the chair in the room, that it was a little more connected to that. Now, I can't explain it to you, and I still would never, and will never sit here from anywhere in A and try to tell you what God is, because that's the worst thing you can do in Alcoholics Anonymous. We may use that word, but what the book says to us, please do not let spiritual terms that we say deter you from asking yourself, what does God mean to me? <coughs> to me. 
what's blocking me, what's causing so much anger and resentment in me that I can't look at this idea of God. No one's forcing me to do it, but how, how am I doing? How's my life? How am I doing? How's sobriety? Am I enjoying myself? And if you are without God, my hat is off to you. That is wonderful. I would never try to change your mind. But for me, that just did not work. Absolutely no avail. That's the kind of alcoholic I am. I'm beyond human aid. That's my story. So I met this guy named Jim. He lived in a hobbit house about an hour from me. Because it was way up in the middle of nowhere. And it was tiny and had a stinky dog. And the worst coffee, and he made the worst food I'd ever had in my life. <laughs> this man had had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. He was carrying this message, and he was practicing principles in all his affairs. I was not. I wanted to know how to get from where I was to where he was. And he said he could show me. And so twice a week, I met at his house two hours of time. We started at the beginning of the book, and I tell you, he said something to me that has become almost commonplace Some some areas I go to, and that is how we have recovered. Where I come from, that word is taboo. You cannot say that word where I'm from. I'm telling you straight up, it's absolutely true. You say that word to me, I have had people try to chase me out of a meeting of AA because I called myself a recovered alcoholic. I did not say from my lips that I am cured. I did not say that I'm no longer an alcoholic. I am Gerald, I'm an alcoholic. I have recovered from alcoholism, from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And if you could sit long enough and talk to me, like, like man-to-man or, or woman-to-man or whatever, could just show you what that's like. And I have some peace and serenity in my life today. I'm not running the show by my mind. I'm not suffering from me. I have recovered. I don't have that physical allergy. I have this brain that tells me, you know what? <coughs> I think I could drink today. I think that'd be okay. And just a week ago, I'm sitting there in a Speedo, hiding from the police in a, in a woodshed out in Ohio, but then a week later, everything kind of cleans up a little bit, and I say, you know what? That was circumstance. <laughs> I won't wear the Speedo. I'll put the gun on it. I'll drink two O'Doul's, you know, one Jenny. No big deal. Like the O'Doul's, let's bring the Jenny, and the Jenny, let's drink the Kilo. Six months later, how did I get here? Oh my God. The miracle is that I'm still here. The miracle is that even after running the show in AA, I'm still here. I'm still here, not up here to tell you how to use your mind. What I'm here to tell you is if you're like me, stop. Quit using it. Because it may be broken. It may be why you're here. It's sure the hell why I'm here. I'm an Alcoholics Anonymous because my mind doesn't work and I get power greater than me. And as I went through those steps, I found out. What, where that power resides, and it's right in my heart. And I stopped running the show from my mind. I read an inventory that was a lot longer than I expected it to be, but I went after it only like the, like the dying could. I had four years without a drink. And four years away from alcohol. And my life hadn't gotten any better. It had gotten a whole hell of a lot worse. And then eventually I had a spiritual awakening. Jules these steps. I'm not going to explain the whole step process, but I'll tell you right now, any single person in this room does it exactly the same. If you do, that's crazy, man. Because I just can't imagine that. There are over 2 million members of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I don't care what book you're using or what not book you're using. All I'm trying to get to is find out, am I powerless over alcohol? Is my life unmanageable? And yes, my life is unmanageable. And yes, I am powerless. It means I have no power. And I have no qualifications to manage my life with my mind, with your mind. I'll tell you, I love my sponsor. He's a great man. I am not going to trust him to keep me sober, man. He is a bank robber. 
help guys go through the step process. That's part of my life today is that I have recovered. I don't, I don't live in the disease. I don't live in the sickness anymore. Um, I have my moments, you know, believe me. You know, I remember talking to my sponsor about three weeks ago saying, I got this resentment, you know, and he's like, why don't you do some writing? And I said, hell that, I'm too sober for that, so I'll manage it. <laughs> so, I got, so I get on the phone, and I'm like, I'm not resentful. I'm not resentful. I, I'm a Buddha. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Buddha, man. And, I, and I, I go, I walk to this meeting, and I see that guy there, and I'm like, I'm fucking resentful. I'm resentful. I hate that guy. Why is he here? The whole meeting, I couldn't hear the speaker, and I'm just like thinking of like six different ways to kill this guy. And, 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 and no one will know it's me. And I'm like, I call him up, and I said, is that a resentment? Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. I am. I'm a resentment machine because I walk into a room with a whole shitload of expectations. I walk into a room and I think of how I should sound. I got it all figured out. I got you all figured out. I prejudged everybody in the room based on how you look, how you talk, who you're sitting next to. There's a girl on your arm. All this crap in my mind. All that garbage. And it's exactly what is garbage. I don't know you. If I haven't gone up to you and we haven't sat together and really connected, you don't know me and I don't know you. And even sitting up here today and sharing my experience with you, there's a whole lot about each other that we don't get to find out in an hour in AA. And I believe that AA, that's why I believe AA is a way of life, and it's not standing from a pulpit, it's not sharing it in a meeting. That stuff is great. If you're here, get help. Find someone who can help you. And if you've gotten the help, go help. That's what we do. But I have to stay connected, and I have to stay humble. Because if I don't, you know, I'm always going to want what I have. And if they do, if they get any of that crap, then they, you know, they could drink and die. You know, and I, and I hate to be part of that. And um, I feel like I'm making stuff up from here on in. My sponsor always says in 15 minutes you can share your what you can share your experience. The rest of it is what you think you know about AA. <laughs> I will 100% find that to be exactly true. You know, and sometimes even my spiritual modesty, I want to sound like oh, you hear how modest I am. Do you hear that? <laughs> I'm sure you are, Mr. Modesty. <laughs> Mr. Fucking shit. <laughs> hey man, I don't know. I'm living this thing every day, like some of you are, and I'm on the firing lines of life. God has made that possible. That's the miracle. I gave up. I surrendered. I give in. He runs the show. And when I want to take it back, and he sure the hell lets me. And I get to experience another level of defeat. And that gets me closer and closer and closer to him. I still can't explain it. But I tell you what, man. I'm, I am blessed to be here among you. I am a walking miracle. I am the message, not what comes out of my mouth. I am the message to show up in AA meeting. I will not try to steal your wallet. I can guarantee you that. That has changed. God has removed that character defect from me. I will not hit on your girlfriend. God has removed that character defect from me. I will not try to bullshit you. God has removed that character defect from me. You know, there's a lot of things God has removed. The rest of the stuff is a work in progress. You know, there's a lot of things, you know, and I, I'm trying to walk day by day in this in this program. If you want to walk hand in hand and day by day with this stuff, we're here. You don't ever have to drink again. And you, guess what? The best part about not drinking ever again is you don't have to drink again and feel like crap. You don't ever have to want to die again. You could actually walk into this room and bring love and peace in here instead of trying to steal it away. But we'll give it to you if you don't have it. I promise you, we will give it to you. 
And it's not coming from me. Because I tell you, sometimes I'd rather be home watching TV, you know, or playing video games. Because I just want to go in my little nothing box. You know? <laughs> but God has other plans for me. He has healed me. He has recovered me. So I have a responsibility to be here with you all tonight. And, and share the good news. That's my only job in life today. And when I try to do more, I'm just trying to run the show. Thanks for letting me share.